You are Locked On Marlins, your daily podcast on the Miami Marlins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast. As always, I'm your host, Aram Layton. I'm a Marlins writer as well as a minor league play-by-play broadcaster. And today, on January 19th, it's a Tuesday, we're going to be answering some of your questions, also a reaction to the Baseball America Top 100 list that featured six Marlins. That was the second largest number in all of baseball. So not a total surprise, but definitely encouraging to see that Baseball America is still high on a lot of these Marlins prospects. Some that are maybe falling in terms of stock a little bit still have some high upside that aren't on that list, like Monte Harrison, like Jesus Sanchez, etc. But it was nice to see Trevor Rogers hop onto the list too, so I'll get into that in just a moment. A lot of good questions to get to, starting with the Marlins Top 100 reaction, where I think the biggest surprise, even though I knew he was going to be towards the top of the list, I did not think he would be this high. Had to be Sixto Sanchez at number six. Yes, Sixto at six for Baseball America's top 100. That made him the highest rated pitcher on the list, which is quite absurd. It's pretty crazy. I don't know if I totally agree with it, but it's great news for Marlins fans, at least from the perspective that they get a big endorsement from Baseball America on Sixto. I can see why people would come away from Sixto's debut incredibly encouraged, but there were also some question marks that I think were presented in his debut as well. I wouldn't say that his stock dropped by any means, but I don't know if it rose that dramatically. Baseball America saw it a different way and now looks at him. He was already a high-rated prospect, a top 20, top 25 prospect, but now sees him as a top 10, nearly a top 5 prospect. I think that's a little bit lofty on him, just to be honest. Right? I'm not just going to sit here and clap my hands at every good news, but I will still say Sixto showed a lot of good things. He showed and reinforced a lot of the beliefs of what he is good at and the fact that he is a front-end Major League pitcher. I think he showed that. He is a front-end Major League pitcher. But the number six prospect in baseball, you're assuming is going to be an ace. And from some of the issues that I saw from Sixto, and issues might be a strong word, but some of the questions that still need to be answered with his pitch usage and the command of the secondaries, those questions need to be answered before I'm putting this guy in the top 10 because I'll get into it here with Sixto. The overall numbers in his seven starts, 3-4-6 ERA, really solid for a rookie, 39 innings, 33 strikeouts against 11 walks. And that's the thing. When we talk about the difference between control and command, Sixto has great control, not as good of command with certain pitches where he doesn't walk a lot of guys, but he tends to miss his spots at times. And that's where he will get knocked around a little bit. What stood out to me the most was the ineffectiveness of that two-seamer or sinker as a lot of people refer to it as essentially the same thing, where hitters seemed quite comfortable against that pitch. And that's where you wonder, how does 96, almost 97, with tailing action or sinking action, how is that easy to hit? Well, first of all, he leaves it up in the zone, and it's a pitch that tends to break downwards a little bit. So if it's a pitch that's starting up and breaking down more towards the middle portion of the zone, it's going to be easier to hit. And for hitters, that was the pitch that they wanted to see from him. Because as a pitcher, it's harder to beat a guy with an elevated pitch when it's 
an elevated pitch that's going to sink a little bit. That's why it's no surprise that the four-seam fastball was much better for him, where opponents hit just 217 against it. The sinker, or two-seamer, opponents hit 368. And this is where it goes into tunneling, right? If you look at the location of the sinker, as I said earlier, frequently located middle and up. When you look at the location of the four-seam fastball, frequently located up. When you look at the location of the changeup, frequently located down, which is where it should be located. That's where a changeup that breaks the way it breaks is a circle change, similar to a way a sinker may break, is going to be more effective. The four-seam fastball also has a spin rate nearly 100 RPMs faster than the sinker and is two miles an hour harder. So that's a pitch that already looks like it's going to be rising and it's harder to catch up to and square up when it's elevated in the zone. That's why he got way more swings and misses 30% whiff rate on that four seamer. The sinker would have been good if he tunneled it and tunneling is making two pitches that have similar action look the same because then if they are different, you know, varying speeds, that's where you're able to get the hitter. And the sinker and the changeup are similar actions because of the way they both break. And if he located those in the same spot, then you would have a better time and he would have more success because the hitter would know that anything that started at the knees was going to be soft. It was probably going to be a changeup. If he located the sinker at the knees, more often than not, the hitter would take it for a strike and the four seam fastball would generally be more elevated in the zone. The slider was not a great pitch for him. So really, it was just the changeup and four seam that were his two best pitches with the sinker not doing much for him. I think hitters were really looking forward to that sinker, and that's where we need to see Sixto Sanchez tunnel better and use those two pitches off each other much better or just not use the sinker as much. It is a big reason why he's able to get a high ground ball rate at over 50%, but it's also a big reason why he is getting hit around a little bit more than he should, and he's not getting as many swings and misses as he should with only 33 strikeouts and 39 innings for his caliber of stuff. He's got to be better than that. Still, with the ability to get ground balls and with his just sheer stuff, he will be a front-end starter, a number three or number two guy. But to really be that ace, I think he's got to find a way to get more swings and misses on the fastball. The four-seamer already works for him. It's two miles an hour harder, so he has more separation between the changeup at about eight miles an hour, eight and a half miles an hour of separation, whereas the sinker and changeup is more at seven and a half miles an hour of separation. So when you consider the fact that the four-seamer is two miles per hour harder and has almost 100 RPMs more before it reaches home plate, that's more like 10 miles per hour in separation from the changeup, whereas the sinker and changeup are closer in velocity differential, and that's why with the same action and the closer velocity differential, you are not going to get as many swings and misses. And that's exactly what happened with Sixto. Something that he can definitely figure out quite easily this year when it comes to the sequencing, and I still expect him to be able to. And I guess Baseball America does as well, and that's why they put him at six on the list. As we go through the rest of the list, I don't have too many issues with it. I kind of like where most of the players are at. Well, can I say that J.J. Bleday should be ahead of Nick Madrigal? Sure. But you know what? At the end of the day, you, you can say that about so many different spots with so many different players. There's always going to be some nitpicking here and there. But Bleday being in the top 50 is really all that matters. He belongs there. Max Meyer right after him at 44. You love to see that because he's a little bit more polarizing and some are lower on him, citing potential reliever risk because of his size. I don't really see too much reliever risk because of his athleticism and ability to repeat his mechanics, but still a polarizing prospect. So good to see Baseball America more on the positive side with him. Jazz at 77. I think after the brief struggle in the major leagues and then a very up and down season when he was traded to the Marlins in 19. 
77 is a good spot for him because he's a high ceiling, low floor guy. We know how good he can be, but we also know some of the questions that come with him. I think that everybody is too low on Edward Cabrera. This is the one that surprises me. 81, look, I'm glad he's in the top 100. I'm glad he's within the top 90, but still 81 for Edward Cabrera. When we look at the numbers that he put up and we look at his stuff and just how electric his stuff is, the strikeout numbers that he has even at the higher levels, how is this guy at 81? I think he's put up better numbers at higher levels than a majority of the players ahead of him. And it's not like he doesn't have electric stuff that you can project pretty well. And it's not like he doesn't have a big body at six foot four that you could project to with more room to fill out. And he also doesn't really have command issues. I don't know why this guy isn't a top 50 prospect in baseball or better. It's very surprising to me that he's not quite that high. I know he had some injury issues last year, did not quite get the chance to make his major league debut. But again, I don't really get why He is always towards the back of the top 100, but at least he is in there. I really like Trevor Rogers entering the top 100, and this is something that I think very much is confusing for some people because they look at the numbers and they're like, why would Trevor Rogers be moving up in his prospect value after he pitched to a 6.11 ERA in his major league debut? Well, I would say that Rodgers was rushed a little bit, right? He had hardly pitched in double-A before getting the call-up in this COVID season, and that was a brief stint in double-A the year before. And that's really pretty crazy to make that jump. I know we saw a few different guys make that jump. Some struggled, some struggled a little bit less. Some had some surprising success. But still, when you look at the numbers for Trevor Rodgers, I think they're a tad misleading, especially when we're only looking at a 28-inning sample size. Would I have liked to have seen him be more efficient in terms of his pitch count and going deeper into games? Sure. He only went more than five innings, or only went five innings or more, excuse me, twice out of those seven starts. That's not ideal, but he managed quite well, and the numbers are, to be frank, misleading because he had one blow-up start, and typically you can make that rule or exception with so many different guys, but this is a rookie who otherwise had a really good year besides the three innings against the Phillies where he gave up eight earned runs. You subtract that, he pitches to a 3.96 ERA, which is a really solid debut. Also, his swing and miss stuff was a lot better than I thought, and the fastball was a fantastic pitch. I would give that fastball a 60 grade after what we saw because of the fact that he was able to ramp it up a little bit more than we had previously seen. He was also spinning the crap out of it. The spin rates were really good, and he changed his grip on a slider, which suddenly became a really good pitch for him as well, but I loved how tough the fastball was on left-handed hitters, also showed a better feel for the changeup. I think this is a guy that's going to be a middle-of-the-rotation arm. I think he still needs to get some experience in AAA before he fully, fully gets ready here to join the Marlins rotation right away. I think the Marlins are better off probably rolling without him just in the beginning, though I would like to see a lefty balancing out the rotation. I think that he needs to get a few starts under his belt just to refine a couple things with the secondary, get ahead of hitters a little bit more so he can work on getting deeper into starts, but still a very, very encouraging debut and clearly Baseball America came away encouraged as well. Now getting into answering the rest of your questions that you asked me yesterday. Thank you again for asking those questions. I'm looking forward to answering them first. A quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by Built Bar. 18 delicious flavors, six new ones. They all taste like a dessert. They're all covered in chocolate, easy to chew, great for a keto diet, which means they're low in fat, low in carbs, low in sugar, high in protein. What else could you want in a protein bar? And best of all, if you go to BuiltBar.com right now and use the promo code Locked On. 
You'll get 20% off your next order and a free cooler while supplies last. That's BuiltBar.com, promo code locked on for 20% off your next order and a free cooler while supplies last. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at BetOnline.ag. There is no other sports book online that we trust more than BetOnline.ag. Get off the sidelines, get into the action. There is so much going on right now in the sports world. We've got the NFL playoffs continuing into this weekend. NBA is underway. We've got college basketball underway. We've got hockey underway. Also, baseball on the horizon. Plenty to wager on, and you will have plenty of money to wager with if you go to betonline.ag and use the promo code locked on, one word locked on, you'll get a 50% welcome bonus to your deposit. So if you deposit $100, an extra $50 on top of it with the promo code locked on at betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. So let's get into those questions you fired my way. Thank you again. First question is How is Edward doing? Do I think he'll be ready to compete for a rotation spot in this coming season? I think it's going to be close. I think he'll be pretty close to ready for competing for a rotation spot. Theoretically, I think he could. I just don't know if the Marlins will rush him into a rotation spot because of the fact that they want to take things easily with him and ease him in to a prominent role where I think if you can start him in a controlled environment in AAA, you can yank him out of starts in the third inning easily just build up his workload where you don't want to do that on the major league level where you're affecting your team and trying to win ball games and tapping into your bullpen too early. I think Edward needs to slowly have his workload ramped up in a game setting. You don't want to just go from zero to a hundred. Of course, when you're going to have the adrenaline pumping on the major league stage, he's going to be throwing a little bit harder, reaching back for a little bit more. And that's where you could end up with an injury. I think he needs to ease into it a little bit from what I've heard, from what I've read, and from what I've just been told, it seems like the Marlins want to be very careful with Edward, and I have no problem with that. There's no rush. The Marlins have a lot of starting pitching depth. Why not go see what Nick Neidert can do? No need to rush Edward. He has a long career ahead of him, and there's just no reason to push it. We want to see him make it through the season too, and that's another thing is he's probably going to be on some sort of a innings limit. I don't know if they'll explicitly say it's an innings limit, but there will definitely be a point where if he, let's say he gets called up and he's going deep into starts, they will shut him down, I think. At least I believe this. I have not been told this, but this is just what I believe, that he would be shut down, presumably, if he was racking up a lot of innings in this season, or at least the Marlins would want to space out his starts. So if you get him a little bit of a late start to the season and the Marlins are competing, he'll be able to go later into starts and pitch more frequently deeper in the season, so I don't have a problem with it. Are the Marlins a top six team in the NL? So this question at first, I was thinking, man, they're not going to like my answer. And you still might not like my answer, but what I realized is it's not as ridiculous of a question as I initially thought. Now, there's no ridiculous question, but I initially thought, man, I don't really need to do too much investigating into this, right? The Marlins are just not in that realm right now. And I don't think they're quite in that realm, but you know what? There are not that many clear-cut great teams. There are a few when we talk about the Braves the Dodgers, the Padres, I'd say the Mets are in that category as well. But beyond that, who is a clear-cut, really good Tier 1 team? There's not that many. I'd say those teams that I just mentioned are quite easily better than the Marlins. Not even really much of a debate there. But there's also some clear-cut, terrible teams, right? Pittsburgh is, I don't even know what Pittsburgh is going to roll out next year. I don't even know who the major leaguers that they are going to field to put on the field 
are going to be and how they're going to do that. So we'll see. Colorado is not very good either. The Marlins are far and ahead of them. Arizona, the Marlins are much better than Arizona. And the Brewers. I really do think the Marlins are better than the Brewers. Lorenzo Cain is aging. A lot of question marks around the rest of their offense besides Christian Yelich, who is coming off a somewhat of a down year, even though I'm not very concerned about him. The starting rotation is just not great. The bullpen is elite. So that's going to be a question of can they bridge the gap to the back end of that bullpen that's really good? Or are they even going to trade away from the back of that bullpen? We do know that there's some reports about that. It's not like they have any reinforcements coming in the farm system either. I'd argue the Marlins are right there, if not better, with the pitching staff. The young pitching staff that the Marlins have is going to keep them competitive in this season and keep them at least around the 500 mark, in my opinion, which is better than a lot of those teams we just mentioned. Then there's the toss-up teams, right? Where we look at the Reds, who could go one way or another. I could see the Reds somewhat surprising, especially if they don't trade Luis Castillo. They still have a lot of talent on that roster. They still got Castellanos last year. There's a potential that Nick Senzel can bounce back. We saw a great year from Sonny Gray last season if he sticks with the team. They're not a bad team by any stretch. Eugenio Suarez, if he can tap back into that 2018-2019 form, then they're a good team. They could easily be better, better than the Marlins with that front end of the rotation talent. And with the big boppers they have in their lineup, they are no slouch either. Probably contenders for the Central. And speaking of contenders for the Central, I think the Cardinals are right there too. Some question marks, a lot of talent. I'd say the Cardinals are better than the Marlins right now. I don't think that's that crazy to say. But there is a reasonable outcome where the Cardinals falter again this year and don't really make the playoffs and struggle. They could have their first year without Yachty. How is the rookie catcher going to be back there, Nizer? I don't know. There's a lot to be answered. They had a pretty abysmal offensive outfield. Can Dylan Carlson make the next step or this coming year? A lot of questions to be answered there as well. Is Paul Goldschmidt going to slow down? I don't think so. I think he's incredible. But there's just plenty to be figured out there too. Starting rotation, Adam Wainwright leaves for the first time ever. But where are they going to be able to get consistent innings in that rotation outside of Jack Flaherty? Some questions to be answered there. But on paper and going into the year, the Cardinals are definitely ahead of the Marlins. But again, there's a reasonable outcome where they could falter behind the Marlins. The Nationals, look, I think the Nationals are always going to get the benefit of the doubt because you have a three-headed monster in Max Scherzer. You have also Steven Strasburg, and you have Patrick Corbin. But here's another reasonable outcome where Max Scherzer's aging did not look great last year. Steven Strasburg is always hurt, and Corbin's a solid pitcher. Then all of a sudden, that rotation is not good if Scherzer's faltering and Strasburg gets hurt. That's not the most insane outcome. I mean, it literally happened last year. I hated the Josh Bell acquisition. I don't really think he helps them much at all. I'm not sold on him being able to bounce back even close to his form in the first half of 2019. And then you also have um, Kyle Schwarber. That's who they got, Kyle Schwarber. Well, we don't even know if there's a DH yet. If Kyle Schwarber's playing the outfield, good luck. Victor Robles better start stretching those legs because he's going to be running all over the place out there. Juan Soto, of course, is one of the best hitters in baseball. And anytime you have a guy like Juan Soto and some other pieces that they have, Trey Turner's fantastic at shortstop. They are a really good team. If everybody's healthy, I'm taking them over the Marlins, but there's a lot of questions to be answered there as well. Philly, I think it's very dependent on if they bring back JT Real Muto, and there's a good chance that they do bring back JT. So overall, I'm going to say the Marlins are not in the top six. I don't think that's too crazy to say, but I think through going through all of these teams and what I just talked about, also I'm left out the Giants. They're an easy toss-up with the Marlins. I would actually give the Marlins the edge over the Giants, though they did make some decent acquisitions. It should be close between those two teams. I think they're a very similar mold, and it will largely be predicated on whether Mike Yaskremski can continue what he did last year and whether Buster Posey 
can come back and actually be a jolt to the offense and regain some of his form that we saw in the past when he won MVPs. Even if he's half of that, the Giants would get a nice boost offensively. They're right there with the Marlins. So I would say the Marlins are not in that top six, like I said, but there is a chance that if a lot of things go right and a lot of things go wrong for other teams, that they realistically could creep into that area. But I would say that they're right in the middle of the pack in the NL. I don't think that's too crazy to say or just outside of it. And you'll take that. I think you'll take that at this point where they're probably in the nine or 10 range in the NL, but they have a chance for more because let's say Corey Dickerson bounces back and has more of a Corey Dickerson type of year. Brian Anderson continues to improve offensively as he has each year incrementally. The Marlins potentially go get a catcher like Wilson Contreras, and then they have Garrett Cooper stay healthy and all of these different moving parts. Can Miggy Rowe repeat what he did last year? Can the Marlins get something out of Isan Diaz or Jazz Chisholm this year? Is Edward Cabrera going to get called up and contribute? What other prospects could potentially contribute? What other additions can the Marlins make? Are they going to go get a bullpen arm? Right now, it's a little too early to tell. I'd say if the Marlins rolled into this year with this current roster, then they're probably closer to the back end of the NL. But if they make some acquisitions, they go get a catcher and they go get a bullpen arm or two, then I'm going to put them in that 10 to 11 range with a chance to be in the 8 or 9 range and best case scenario they can make a push for 7 or 6 so not quite there but not as ridiculous as maybe some may think for the Marlins to get in that range another question was is it better for the Marlins to lose this year theoretically and get a top pick in the draft where they can address a position of need and get another top prospect or elite player uh, I don't think so at this point. You know, you're looking at a team that is starting to take that step in the right direction. They really need to do it now. I'm not saying by do it, I mean they need to continue to take that step in the right direction. They need to prove that last year wasn't a fluke and that they are trending forward and they are progressing and that this is all part of the plan that last year wasn't just a little blip in some magical season and it's not really reflective of of the fact that this team was built from the ground up and is starting to progress and that the front office is making the right moves. I think at this point, you got to hope for the Marlins to win for so many different reasons because you want them to be able to be players for some free agents next year. You want your young players to continue to develop. And I think if you're finishing in last place with how much young talent the Marlins have on the team right now, that would imply that the young talent is not performing. And that's not what you want to see. The Marlins need to start inching towards competitiveness and start getting towards a point where they are a couple pieces away and you can start to see the core of the future. I think they did take a step in that direction, whether you think last year was legitimate or not, to find who some of the core pieces are, see where some of the prospects are. And also, if we're talking about a draft capital standpoint, the Marlins essentially have two top picks in the first 30 picks because the Astros don't have a pick this year and the Marlins have the first compensation A pick. So their first selection will be wherever they end up in the standings, let's say middle of the pack, somewhere in the 12 range. Then their second pick will be at the 30 spot. You'll have two two selections in the top 30. You're going to get a lot of talent there. There'll be plenty of guys that they will be able to snatch up and a lot of talent to pick from. I'm not too worried about the Marlins being able to add talent there. They already have a great farm system. They already have some pieces that can go trade to get some talent. It's time to start building a winning culture and take those steps 
in the right direction towards 2022 contention. I really think that's what the Marlins are planning on and they need to go do that. Who is most likely to be the next acquisition? Well, that's a tough one to answer because I don't really know what the Marlins are focusing on at this moment, right? We know that they're interested in a catcher. We know that they're interested in a right fielder and we know that they're interested in bullpen help. If my life depended on it, I would probably guess the Marlins would sign another somewhat boring bullpen arm with some upside. I saw Eli Sussman float the idea of the Marlins going to trade for Adam Adovino, who is expensive, but the Yankees would presumably eat some of his contract to at least shed half of that contract would be an interesting acquisition for the Marlins and instantly would slide into the back of the bullpen, potentially closer. I like that idea from Eli and it would not cost a lot prospect-wise. More than likely, I could see the Marlins just jumping in on a reliever that they like or that they've wanted that may get snatched up at this point as the market continues to thin slowly, whereas the trades, maybe that's a focus if they're really sold on Ben Attendee right now, but you know where I stand on this point. If you've ever listened to this podcast in the last two weeks, I do not want Andrew Ben Attendee on the Marlins. I think the Marlins have enough question marks in their outfield, enough guys with inconsistent bats that are somewhat glove-first prospects. Ben Attendee at his peak was not even that spectacular, and he was abysmal last year, albeit small sample size, but totally lost at the plate, taking 0-2 fastballs right down the middle, totally changing his approach, a ground ball rate over 60% because he was trying to do something differently than people were blaming the Red Sox organization for telling him to change his approach, and then he was all in his own head, and that is just not a situation I think the Marlins need to have. I think we've kind of seen what happens when you have a hitter that's all in his own head with Lewis Brinson, and sometimes that's something that you don't fully recover from. Do the Marlins need to have go through another outfielder's offensive struggles. Are you really that sure that Ben is going to bounce back? I don't like it. If you get him for essentially nothing, then maybe, but they're looking for major league caliber pitching, which would mean Eliezer Hernandez, maybe Nick Neidert. I wouldn't even want to give up one of those guys straight up for him. Braxton Garrett, no thanks. No thank you. I would rather just look in other directions. You think the Red Sox would be selling low after losing Jackie Bradley Jr.? Would be selling low on Andrew Benatendi, I mean, as low as possible because he could not have been worse in his 50 plate appearances this past season than he was. Why would the Red Sox sell this low on him if they could just wait a couple months into the season and trade him? I think at this point, they do not like what they're seeing from him mentally and physically. And I just don't think that he is the guy the Marlins need to bring in right now, especially when you have so many outfielders knocking on the door that I'd rather see get the opportunity. And you can use those assets, whatever you would have traded for Ben Attendee, to go get Wilson Contreras for goodness sake. Please do that. That makes the Marlins infinitely better. So to answer your question, probably a reliever first, then maybe a right fielder, hopefully not Ben Attendee, and then probably a catcher as third most likely at this point to be the next acquisition. And I'll just say one thing about this. One last thing is how often am I this adamantly against something on this podcast? If you've been listening for a while and on Twitter, the only other time I can think of where I've been this adamantly against something, it was Jonathan VR batting at the top of the order and playing center field. That is the only other time I've felt this strongly against something. And I remember a lot of people telling me, VR is fine in the outfield and he's fine at the top of the order. He's super productive, whatever. Yeah, I can see that. But clearly he was a zero for the Marlins and he was a zero for the Blue Jays as well and essentially got the Marlins Griffin Conine for free. So thank you for your sacrifice, Jonathan VR. Probably the only other time I was this adamant 
against something or just about something in Locked On Marlins history. So that's where I stand on that. Hopefully the rumors won't resurface again because I've had enough talking about it. And we'll talk about it, I guess, if it happens. But until then, we are going to assume that the Marlins are going to get a reliever and they're going to get a catcher and they may go get a right fielder that is somebody else. Maybe a Cole Calhoun, maybe somebody along those lines. Maybe a Jock Peterson with a little bit of a platoon situation. I was a little against that at first, but now that sounds like heaven on earth compared to some of the options the Marlins are floating. So thank you for your questions in this episode. Thank you for listening. And as always, I really appreciate it. I look forward to talking Marlins baseball with you tomorrow.